0: This is Base Layer brought to you by ARCA. I'm your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. This is David and this is your new episode of Base Layer. I have Hugo Rinaldin, the CEO of LGO with me today. LGO is a leading digital asset exchange for institutions. Hugo, how are you? Very good, very good. Thanks for having me. So this is going to be a great conversation. Hugo, uh, as... I've had other guests on my show has traditional finance background um, and has made his way into digital assets. And so we love talking about that crossover, if you will. So Hugo, before we get into LGO and the things that you're doing there, we'd like to get a little more information about you as I alluded to. You have worked in positions in FX trading and derivatives and fund management. Tell us a little bit about uh, your background before LGO and then tell us about what specifically led you to the world of digital assets what about the underpinning technology and the revolution if you will that was happening here led you to this world
1: yeah absolutely so first i'm a i'm a mathematician by by trade i I studied math uh uh, i did a master's in math in france and that led me to uh, as you mentioned to work in the financial ecosystem in you know let's say quantitative position so i was working in in, in spot effects, I, I used to do uh, equity derivative structuring. I did a little bit of portfolio management uh, as well, but uh, you know, with a heavy, heavy aspect, uh, heavy um, focus on on mathematics. Um, so that's how I kind of, uh, you know, that, that's my experience in, in traditional finance. It's tech and and, and math related. Um, and a couple of years ago, um, you know, I was actually still a still a student uh, and and. One of my computer science uh, teacher talked about blockchain, and it was like the the first time that I heard about this. So, I was quite interested about that. Started looking at it, uh, applying what I knew uh, on finance and and what I learned uh, in the blockchain ecosystem, and tried to make, um, you know, both and meet. Um, and that's 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 what how I started. So, I moved to New York a couple of years ago, and I before before starting LGO, I started working for. Uh, a cryptocurrency hedge fund so that was pre-2017 bubble and at the time we had a hundred million dollar in AUM we were one of the biggest uh, hedge fund in the space and we were doing arbitrage so believe it or not at the time we were doing arbitrage by just clicking on screen right so today it's like uh, it wouldn't be possible there would be no spread but at the time we had like actually several a spread of several percentages you know just arbing the market um in a very uh, you know manual fashion and uh, where we did make uh, some some good money. So from there, um, met my co-founder uh, Fred. We and we, you know, being being um, on the other side, of being a trader, you know, I kind of saw the what lacked in, um, in in you know in the cryptocurrency exchanges at the time. And so we decided with Fred to to put together uh, an institutional exchange, and that that was the beginning of of NGO. So you know, the fast forward uh, three years later. Um, uh, we have LGO. LGO is the leading European exchange for, for institutions. We have um, in Europe, sorry. So, you know, we have approximately 50, uh, 50 counterparties that, uh, that trade Bitcoin uh, and Bitcoin only today uh, on our platform. They come from 15 different jurisdictions. Um, we offer them, you know, trading services, financing services, execution services. And, and yeah, so that's, uh, that's a bit about uh, my life in crypto.
0: Okay. And so, as relates to LGO, what problems are you trying to solve? Because exchanges and the like out there, there are many. Um, there are places that people can go, but obviously you guys have done a significant job getting clients onboarded. So, what problems are you trying to solve, or what problems did you see that you're trying to solve?
1: Yep, yeah, Absolutely so um, the the first problem that we that we uh, that we thought we were solving and that actually didn't end up being a real problem, was a problem of transparency. So the very beginning of uh, and that that's actually quite interesting too it was a quite interesting experience and and very humbling as well, because the basis of, the, of NGO was to um, to create an exchange that was provably transparent. With the idea that what was uh, missing for most of institutional investors was transparency on the market, so you have to, you know, uh, you have to think that in 2017 there was a lot of problem in, in terms of, you know, uh, front running, fake data, uh, market manipulation, and things like that. And so we wanted to solve this problem with uh, with technology. So you know, building um, building a protocol that use uh, that uses blockchain to prove the transparency of trade. So that, that was the basis of LGO. That is something that we've done that is available. Actually, you can, uh, for every trade which happens on LGO, you can actually go and see on the Bitcoin blockchain, uh, you know, the, the the authenticity of orders, and you can you can check that the trade is, is, has actually been done. But we thought that would be the, the, the you know, what would um, move uh, institutional investors. As you might guess from how I, I, I tell the story, it is not. It's a good point. Obviously, it's a nice to have transparency. But you know, we 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 realized pretty quickly that there was uh, much more than this, much you know, many more problems uh, that you know that our clients were facing. So, you know, going from there, we started focusing on on on, on our client base, which are not so much traditional institutions, you know, uh, you know the big asset managers of this world, uh, banks, uh, you know, all that, and and you know, we can we can go deeper into that. But I, I think there. Most they first have to get used to like instruments like futures that are easier to use for them before going into into physical Bitcoin. So, you know, with, with this in mind, we, we started you know focusing much more on crypto native institutions. Mm. So I'm talking about cryptocurrency hedge funds, crypto asset managers, and you know we starting we started um, kind of developing our services, our offers, so that we can um, offer them exactly the right service. So. It comes down to several stuff. So you know, you look at our clients. Most of the time, they have their main cost is an execution cost and a financing cost, and that's that's the basis of you know their cost of trading. So that's the L in their P and um, In terms of execution, we've worked very hard to bring the best, uh, one of the best liquidity possible on the market. So we we work with uh, seven of the ten biggest market makers in the in the Bitcoin space. And we offer some of the lowest slippage in the market to our clients. So we, we lower the, the execution cost as much as we can. On the financing side, I think that is actually something that we're rolling out. Um, we have a you know, a lot of clients that, are, that have a hedge fund or an arbitrage uh, type of trading. And so they're obviously very capital efficient. And we're offering them flexible ways to finance their trade, a bit like a prime broker, if you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that they can trade with the lowest financing cost possible. And so you know, kind of understanding as much as we can, uh, the our clients, which are again, crypto-native institutions, and developing the right services and the right products has been so far the key to, to to our success.
0: Got it. And so you work with more than 40 institutions around 15 countries. And so I'm curious, as we've all been trying to dissect what the sentiment is out there as relates to bitcoin and other digital assets in light of a global pandemic and now obviously here in the states we've seen a massive sell-off in the equity markets and we've seen deterioration in the credit markets you know what are you hearing what is the current sentiment out there from your clients and from people out there that you're talking to
1: um, I think our clients are quite you know uh, especially uh, except those that that got burned in, in uh, you know for, during the episode of uh, March 12th but most of our clients are, are actually pretty happy about what's uh, what's what's going on. So um, most of our clients are long volatility. so there's you know some good volatility on the market for the past few weeks and that allows them to make to make some money. so they're they're happy about that. Um, there's also something which is, uh, which is quite interesting to notice and that, you know, it's kind of a change in paradigm. Um, I think you were talking about credit risk in the, in the, in the, traditional market, but with what happened with the, you know, the, 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 the chain of liquidations on BitMEX on March 12th and, you know, like you see that the, the whole market is, is a bit more structured in terms of how they take, uh, credit counterparty risk. And, and that's that's uh, that's something that was definitely not there a couple of months ago uh, where it was way easier to get you know financing and now uh, the, the market is getting more and more um, more and more yeah institutional you could say institutional. Um, one thing that I will add as well, and you know we we're discussing that with uh, uh, with a couple of clients. you know in, in the current context, Bitcoin makes sense as an asset um, mm-hmm. because uh, you look at, the different monetary policies that are being uh, implemented in the U.S. in Europe; those are inflationary uh, policies. And you look Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a perfect hedge against uh, against inflation. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in the medium to long term, you know, the case for Bitcoin is here. Bitcoin was made for these times. But on the other hand, when you look at what happened on, on March 12, where Bitcoin lost half of its value in, in like a couple of, of hours. Well, if you look deeper into that, you see it's a problem of, of, of market structure, mm-hmm. not so much a problem of value. And that kind of makes you wonder, you know, uh, there is an asset that has real value, but that can the price can fluctuate by, you know, uh, by half just because of, of market structure. So right. there's a common um, understanding amongst uh, institutional clients that a lot of work has to be put very quickly into ba- building a more robust uh, infrastructure.
0: Let me jump in there. Does that mean circuit breakers? Because that conversation started to unravel a few weeks ago when that happened.
1: Um, the circuit breaker argument, again, I, I, I we, we need something similar uh, for that. But the thing is that I think it's quite difficult to implement in the in the cryptocurrency world, where you know uh, you have some some exchanges that are regulated, some that are not, some that absolutely don't care about regulation; they just want to to um, you know uh, to, to to profit from 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 their business. So what happened with BitMex, you know, the, the the maintenance that they had, whether it was a genuine or not, was actually kind of a circuit breaker in, in its in its own form. So I think something that would be good more than circuit breaker would be to have an agreement amongst the biggest marketplaces, amongst the biggest exchanges on um, how to um, limit those kinds of risks. And, you know, the OTC industry has done a great job in organizing themselves and having some kind of common rules in terms of trade settlements and, and, and delivery times and things like that. And I think that having something similar for exchanges, especially exchanges that have leverage, so future exchanges, derivatives ex- exchanges, that's something that, that
0: that would be required. So here's an idea. Why don't we use the DAO? Why don't we use a big DAO, basically, with... Oracles that are being fed by and also verified by something like a chain link or something else out there have a DAO so it's not a centralized body. Have something out there that is constantly verifying and and looking at processing the data out there. And if something like this happens again, like a BitMEX issue, it can thus do things because there's a smart contract in there that says, if X, then Y why not do that? Do you think that's for, do you think that's an, an option? I know we're spitballing here, but you know I'm, I've been thinking about that for the last few weeks. Do you think that's an option?
1: Um, yeah, you could decentralize it, but I think you know like that everybody's interested are tied to uh, to having a robust market. So you, you could you could start with simple uh, you know alignments of, of the, the the main the main actors. Um, the thing is that if you so. If we go through the decentralized, um, to the decentralized option, the Big DAO, and you know, having exchanges connect to that, you know, I mean, us as an exchange it would be a it would be kind of a stretch because you know you kind of have to give up your your security, your systems to to something which is a uh, um, which is decentralized, and you know that's in the long term. I do agree with you that would be the ideal solution. In the short term, I think that's something you know, just having some kind of understanding and and. And as well, you know, a response from market participants, maybe not to put all their funds into or to to put all their hedges into one hedging platform and kind of spread the risk like that. That's something that in the short term, I think, has has good chances of success.
0: Got it. And so I, I think what most people got from, you know, Black Thursday, whatever you want to call it, the whole BitMEX issue is that hedge funds and investors out there were getting margin called and so you and i both know because we came from traditional finance world when you are margined and you're overlevered and you get a margin call you basically have to sell anything that's not basically nailed down to the floor and so that is gold that is bitcoin anything that is liquid that is that can be sold you know obviously to cover that margin so i think do you agree with me that that was basically the culprit there, that it was basically a cascading margin call that everyone basically had to sell and kind of bail out their their ships and get out the water as much as humanly possible?
1: I, I do agree with you, and I would add two things. Um, the first one is the fact that liquidations were made on uh, BitMEX's order book, which is um, uh, an increasing factor of, uh, of uh, you know, uh, this event so at some point so it's multicoin that made a very interesting analysis on that and uh, i'll send you the link after that but it's it's a very interesting read at some point there were 200 million dollars of liquidation that had to be done on, on bitmex and um the bids were there were only 20 million dollars so you know so that 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 could have completely drove the, the price to uh, potentially to zero uh, just because of this kind of imbalance of market structure. Yep. Now the second thing that, I, that I'll add, and that's something that ha- actually happened to, a, to one of our clients. So the, the, the margin call is indeed uh, the, the main cause, but something that we can add as well is the latency of the, of the blockchain network.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: um, as, as you know, on BitMEX you have to deposit collateral in, in Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And actually, you know, there's a good correlation between market volatility and, uh, and transaction fees and length of, uh, uh, transaction on, on on the main blockchains like ETH, ethereum and, and, and Bitcoin and so we have one client that wanted to deposit more collateral to to, to meet their margin call but the thing is that their collateral didn't reach uh, their wallet on bitmex just because the, mar- the the network was congested so they got liquidity all the same and so that's the kind of stuff that you know that only happened in in the, in the blockchain world the, the scalability of, of the blockchain network, and
0: you know it, it happened
1: at the at the worst possible moment, and so mm-hmm. that's something that we've seen as well.
0: And so, when we think about institutional landscape, when we think about the folks here in the states that are participating, the hedge funds, the digital asset funds. Uh, some of the family offices out there, obviously, you know, I've been pounding the pavement for years and we've started to see some more family offices start to dip in. You know, the last few weeks has been very interesting as people are starting to evaluate uh, Bitcoin as an untethered financial asset. And so how would you say, you know, because obviously you serve both U.S. and institutional and European clients, how are the European, European institutional uh, kind of landscape, how is it different from the U.S. landscape? And uh, what are the kind of some of the lessons that you can learn from both sides of the the, uh, the pond if you will
1: yep absolutely so one thing which is um very different between the US and Europe is the fact that there exists um traditional instruments in the u.s to gain exposure to Bitcoin so you have uh you know you know you have Cme that has listed uh futures and options now on Bitcoin and that's been that's been uh, live for for more than than a year now and it's doing uh, it's doing actually very good very good volume and that's a very easy way uh, for an institution to get into this market, right? Because it goes into the same pipes. You don't have to go through the complexity of, you know, opening a wallet, securing that wallet, uh, understanding how blockchain transactions work and, and whatnot. It's a future. So it, it clears the same way. It's, you know, it, it works just the same way as any kind of commodities future that, that an institution might might have. So, you know, the instruments on the US side are here and that makes it so much easier for institutions to get into this space and and for us as service providers to kind of educate our clients on that um in europe you know you have you don't have those, those can you don't have this kind of instrument um you do have some uh, local uh exchanges like there's the deutsche Börse that is working on, on that there's the swiss the swiss stock exchange that is working on, on on a bit that has been working and that has released a bitcoin product as well but you know it's 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 still um not so widespread so there's you know, I, I think the Europe is much slower from a traditional institutional standpoint. But you know, there's a clear regulation that is being rolled out uh in most countries. In Germany there is one, in France there is one, in Swiss obviously there there is one as well. So I think things are taking are a bit slower in Europe um, and than than in the US for sure, but you know, they're slowly catching up and, and the, the regulation is playing an important uh an important uh, role here as well
0: right so would you say now and i'm not asking you to forecast but would you say now is a good time to potentially look into diversify their portfolios institutional clients out there and why would it be a good time to do it now
1: um so so first this is not investment advice obviously uh i'm you know we're in this space um and and that means that we we do believe that bitcoin has uh, has some value um now again, now more than ever, um, it's it's the, the, it's the time for Bitcoin, and, and Bitcoin was made for that. So it's kind of a make or break time for, for Bitcoin. But if you if you do believe in the in having an asset which is um, you know which has a fixed uh, inflationary uh, policy, which is coded, uh, which has a scarce supply, um, which can be used. By millions of people around the world, without intermediaries, uh, that has been used as a safe haven, that has been used as a way to do cross-border payments, and you know that has actual good traction in, in some countries. You know, you have countries like Turkey where there's more than 20% of the population that owns cryptocurrencies. I think you know now with the current crisis, with the current um, fact that everything has to be digitized, the the, the monetary policies that we touched on earlier. Um, this is a perfect time for Bitcoin, and obviously, it's not going to take uh, uh, some days or weeks to, uh, to to materialize. But over the course of the next months, the next year, I think this is really where, where, when we'll see whether Bitcoin can uh, live up to its uh, original promise to be this kind of decentralized um, digital money that can be used as, you know, uh, as a as a flight to quality that can be used as a as um as a mean of transfer or, or whatever. So I think now is the it's a very, very interesting time for, for Bitcoin. That's for sure.
0: And so we've seen over the last few weeks, especially this week, that Binance just made an acquisition of coin market cap we've seen some other uh exchanges like kraken be acquisitive do you think exchanges are going to be more acquisitive this year and could you not necessarily i'm asking you to forecast for ldo but or do you see pockets where you know obviously exchanges can add to their value proposition to make it that much more sticky yep
1: yeah. so it, it will be uh i think as in any any uh, crisis and that's not specific to the the cryptocurrency industry but there will be uh you know you have some companies that rely on 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 external financing from, from venture capital firms for instance that will not be able to get this financing um so either you'll have acqui-hires or you will have businesses that will sell themselves to uh, to businesses that can act- actually generate cash they can actually generate profit or they can pay with with some stock but you, you'll see some kind of consolidation just because of the just because of the the current economic context and that's again that's not only for crypto but that's um that's um, that's for the you know any 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 kind of industry now how can you as an exchange be um, uh, more uh, add value through an acquisition to your clients I think the binance the binance uh, there, there are several obviously several strategies but the, the binance and coin market cap acquisition is an interesting case study so you know on the face of it you look at it and you you can ask yourself, why does the biggest exchange bother by you know buying this uh, this website that's that you know that stores data on volume and things like that? Well, if you look at the traffic of Coin Market Cap, it's the largest uh, it's the largest traffic related to cryptocurrencies on the internet. And so, for a company like Binance, it it makes sense because if people type Bitcoin price or type you know bitcoin volume or cryptocurrency market cap they will go on coin market cap and so that means that as an exchange as as binance you can actually capture this audience and you can deliver your products so it's a good way to uh, to um, acquire new users and to, to 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 push your products now you know from our perspective from a you know being more institutional um our focus is on building the 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 best products so that our clients can 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 trade more so and trade more in in a better in a, in a better way. So you know, our core products, our core services, to offer transaction services. But with that comes a myriad of other services. So you know, no. you have the prime broker model. Uh, you know how to make sure that your clients can trade with the least uh, um, the least um, capital cost. Um, you have data services. You know uh, this is something that exists in the. In the traditional exchange world, you know how to monetize your data and how to package your data so that it's worthwhile for, for your clients to buy uh, this data from you. Um, you know, so I think there's a it's this is a move that happened in the in the traditional space, and mm-hmm. obviously things don't happen exactly the same way they, they used to happen. But there's a there's a, some some good learnings to be uh, to be made from what happened in the traditional exchange space. So I think we'll see a, a diversification of uh, of Offering through acquisitions for exchanges that are focused on, 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 on institution.
0: Okay. And so what we'd like to do with our guests as we wrap up and you could have some answers to this, or maybe not, but um, obviously it's been busy for everyone as we're dealing with being in lockdown, and so maybe you've had some time to do some reading, maybe you haven't, but I always like to ask guests anything that they've read recently that really resonated with them, anything, uh, either a book that they might be reading currently right now, or an article that they came across, anything that you read that kind of resonated with you and made you think, maybe you talked to a few friends on Zoom and said, wow, this is really kind of cool, and any music that you like, we like just to kind of get a little kind of personal flavor of our guests, and so anything that you've read recently and any music that you like.
1: Yep. Uh, so I'm, I'm currently reading a book on uh, on a French uh, industrial entrepreneur who's called Marcel Dassault, uh, who was one of the uh, the leading um, aeronautic uh, uh, you know entrepreneur in France in the in the 19th century, the 20th century, sorry, and and it's very interesting what he says because. You know, today, the way we think about building a business, you know, like you were often very, um, very uh, tempted to go through the, the the VC model where you raise a lot of money, you have a nice business plan, a, a nice pitch, you know, and you raise a lot of money and you don't necessarily make a lot of profit at first. Well, it was completely the opposite for, for this guy that created an empire, you know, taking things step by step, uh, adding value to your first customer um adding more services that have more value to your customers and at the end of the day have a very healthy business so that's something which uh which i find very interesting uh and that i'm currently i'm currently reading and on a lighter note uh i've been watching the this netflix documentary which is absolutely amazing which is called tiger king yep that i highly recommend <laughs> because to me it, it, it means that anything can happen right you can uh you can you, you can work in crypto but you can also choose to uh to you know, to raise 150 tigers in uh, in Oklahoma and and be and try to be governor, you know, like that those kind of mm-hmm. stories. It's uh, I always like it because it's um, it makes you think that anything is possible in life, and and it's a very uh, a very interesting uh, very interesting program as well.
0: I think we just finished episode three, so we've been watching one episode a night when we uh, when we get our kids down, so waiting to see how this all plays out. I heard just now that they're adding another episode, and so uh, <laughs> it seems that uh, Tiger King is the all-time best thing that Netflix has ever done, and so quite interesting, but I agree. It's uh, it's very interesting, so people should check it out if they haven't. Any music that you like?
1: Um, you know, I, I like my classics, so... I am a big fan of uh, the Beatles when they, they're more, uh, when they started taking a, uh, well LSD, you know, like they, they do, they do some very good music <laughs> from uh surgeon pepper, uh, I think. So that's something that I've been uh, listening to uh, quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's, um, there's a, there's a, a more recently, there's been a, there's some French electronic music that I like, you know, the French Daft Punk and, and artists like
0: that. Oh yeah. There you go. Daft Punk is uh is a big one for me too Um, and then the last thing I want to do is where can people find out more about LGO and get in touch with you guys
1: very simple Uh, you can go to our website lgo.group that's it that's our website
0: there you go Well, thank you, Hugo, for joining us today. Uh, LGO, again, is one of the leading exchanges out there working with uh, clients across the globe. And this was a great conversation. I appreciate it, Hugo. And hopefully we can catch up with you again in a few months and see how things are progressing. And hopefully we're all out of lockdown by that point. So uh, we'll be in touch and stay safe.
1: Thank you, David. Take care.
0: For more notes from this past episode about our guest, please go to www.ar.ca slash Baselayer. Nothing stated on this podcast should be taken as investment advice, which would require a thorough assessment of each investor's personal financial profile and risk tolerance. Statements regarding past performance are not necessarily indicative of future returns. If you like what you're listening to on Baselayer, let us know subscribe, give us a like, or hit us up on Twitter, ARCA, at ARCA, or myself, David Nage, at DavidJN79. Let us know, and we'd love to obviously hear from you. For additional resources to help sophisticated listeners like yourself learn about the digital asset space and the financial terms you understand, please visit www.ar.ca for articles, marketing commentary, videos, and more.